Well, last week we finished a section that began really in Ephesians chapter 5 and it ended in chapter 6 with verse 9. So we've talked about and we've been speaking about the very practical ways in which we relate one to another, specifically how we submit one to another in those various relationships. So Paul began all of this by telling us in verse 18 of chapter 5 to be those who are filled with the Spirit. And then in verse 21 of chapter 5, we're told that Christians are to be subject to one another. And then as Paul generally does in his epistles, he proceeds to give some very practical examples. So for instance, we were told in verses 22 and 24 through 24 that Wives are be subject to their own husbands, and everything is unto the Lord. In verse 25 to 33, we saw that the husband's role is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. He's to nourish her and protect her. He's to be the primary human aid in her sanctification and godliness. He's to be the priest and the king of his home. And then Paul moves to the last relationship in the family in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6, teaching about children. And we find that it's God's desire that children obey their parents. And it's the duty of parents to demand obedience and to instruct their children in the fear of the Lord. And all of that is what's pleasing to God. And then from there, we move on to the working relationship, which is what we covered last week, the slave and the master. And the teaching in each one of these relationship dynamics, we spoke about how they are really countercultural in every aspect. Many in the world today simply can't comprehend why true Christians do what they do and how they relate to one another. The world sees the wife who submits to her husband as essentially a brainwashed doormat. They see the godly husband who protects and loves his wife as some picture of toxic masculinity. The world looks at the family, the parents who love their children and discipline them as something wicked. They would rather see children drugged by antidepressants or worse, the children even ruling the home. That's exactly what we see today in much of the world. And of course, there's no respect in our society for those who are in charge of the workplace, especially in a world that pushes Marxist ideology of the oppressed and the oppressor. And so when the world sees the Christian family, it hates it. When the world sees the Christian parents disciplining their child, rightfully, they call it abuse. When the world sees the Christian employee who does what they're told, They're astonished as to why he isn't rebellious and on strike with them. But God's way is the only way that leads to real hope and true happiness. The wife who submits to her husband out of love for not only him, but for Christ, will find a joy that the worldly feminist will never, ever have. The husband who takes his role seriously as priest and king in the home, striving to present his bride at the end of their life back to God as one who's more holy because of him will have rewards both in heaven and earth such that the godless husband can't fathom to begin begin to fathom. The children who are brought up with the discipline and instruction of the Lord have the greatest chance 
for success in this life. And the employee who does what he's told is a blessing and not a curse in the workplace. And his testimony of Christ will be noticed. And so God's ways have always been counterintuitive to the world's ways. Paul has been telling us all along that there are basically two paths. Just two paths and everyone is on one or the other. In verse 8 of chapter 5, he says, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. And so we are either walking in darkness or we're walking in light. And the darkness will always hate the light. And the light will always be the antithesis of the dark. And so we should expect that God's ways would be utterly opposed to the ways of the world. Now, this morning is going to be slightly different from my typical exposition of the text because I want to touch on something that the text alludes to, but this is going to be a bit more topical than my normal exposition. We're still in verse 9 of chapter 6, and so if you haven't made your way to Ephesians chapter 6, go ahead and do that. We covered this verse last week. Let me read it again to us this morning. It says, And masters... Do the same things to them, that's the slave, giving up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Now, I want to focus in this morning on that phrase, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. This morning, I want to talk about a topic that I believe is in dire need of attention in the church today especially the church at large, and that's what it means to be a slave of Christ. Paul says to the master that don't forget master, as you treat your slave the way he ought to be treated, that you both have a master, and he's in heaven. And so we are all slaves of Christ. Now, I realize it's impossible to mention certain words in today's world without half of our population falling into a fit, but that doesn't negate the truth or necessity of using those terms. This morning is going to be another one of those topics, as you well know, that may initially create strong reaction, even to us, maybe. But we have to speak of what the Bible speaks of unapologetically and as graciously as we can, but unrelentingly insisting that the Scripture is absolutely true. Last week, we spoke about the details of slavery. We spoke about what slavery looked like in the Old Testament. We spoke about what slavery looked like in the early church era as well. And so I don't want to belabor the point. You can go back and listen to last week's message if you need to. But I do want to remake a statement and just briefly remind us. The statement that I made last week that's very true is that not all slavery is bad. That's just a fact. It's a true statement. We elaborated on that last week. We have to understand that much of slavery throughout history, and especially in those days, was essentially a work contract. There were other types of slavery in those days, and they included types of slavery that was essentially court-ordered as a form of restitution for theft. And so when we understand that for many in those days, the slave-master relationship was actually a means of blessing, 
to many. And in fact, it was such a blessing to many that some were willing to devote themselves to their master for life. If we understand that, we won't be so taken aback by the mere mention of the word. Essentially, then the slave who had all his needs met, who had a good master, could, when he was given his freedom, decide to basically say, you know what, life is far better here, working on this farm, working on this estate than I could ever do on my own. And I have a good master. He's met all of my needs. So you know what, I want to commit to working for this man for a lifetime. That was something that happened. And so with that choice, he would go to the master. He would let him know, you know what? I don't need my freedom. I want to stay and serve you. The master would take his ear and pierce it, basically, with an earring. And anyone that would see that slave with an earring would instantly know that he had a good master. Because here's a man that found a master worthy of devoting his life's work to. And so these are all legitimate forms of slavery. Oftentimes, people would sell themselves into slavery just to make enough money for whatever they would want, and it would basically be a contract. They would work for however long the contract was, and then they would gain their freedom. Beyond that, they could also often buy their freedom back. And so there were legitimate forms of slavery. Now, we also spoke about the form of slavery that was evil, right? In Exodus 21, 16, we read, He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he's found in his possession, shall surely, shall surely be put to death. And so the penalty for man-stealing, for human trafficking, for chattel slavery, which is what we most commonly know of today, was punishable by death. And so you have good forms of slavery and you have evil forms of slavery. It was never acceptable to God to go steal a man, to go kidnap a man and sell him into slavery. The penalty was death. Now, unfortunately, in our world today, human trafficking is the only form of slavery most people are familiar with. And so we see the word slave and these emotions rise up, well, essentially out of ignorance. Now, I think partially to blame in the church is the fact that many English translations translate the word for slave, which is doulos, is the Greek word. They translate it in your Bibles as bond servant or servant. And for many in the modern day, that paints an entirely different picture because we don't understand what it meant to be a bond servant in those days. The word makes a world of difference especially in modern Christianity. Far too many Christians have this idea of coming to Christ, being a Christian, and then still doing whatever they want, whenever they want, however they please. But that's not biblical Christianity. Why don't you turn with me to Romans 1.1 quickly. Romans 1.1. Read verse, read verse 1, it says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, having been set apart for the gospel of God. A slave 
of Christ. Now, in the NA, that's from the Legacy Standard. In the NASB, it says bondservant. In the ESV, it says servant. In the New King James, it says bondservant. In the King James, it says servant. But the word here in the Greek, and this is where sometimes it matters, the Greek word is doulos, and it means slave, and it always means slave. There are actually several other words in the Greek language used for servant, and doulos is never one of them. It's never one of them. So why the change? Well, it's not so much that the meaning has been changed, because if you understand what bond servant meant, you'll understand that it means slave. But in our modern day, it doesn't paint the right picture because we don't understand what bond servant means. So essentially, the translators used bond servant because of the stigma that comes along with the word slave. Now, I, I don't want to, what I don't want to do is make you uncomfortable with our English translations. They're perfectly fine. Bond servant is accurate. It's just not the most accurate. Slave is exactly the right word. But let me read to you from the ESV's oversight committee as to why they translated the Greek word doulos instead of using slave, why they chose bondservant. And I quote, the word slave currently carries associations with the often brutal and dehumanizing institution of slavery in 19th century America. For this reason, the ESV translation of the words ebed, ebed is the Hebrew word for slave, and doulos has been undertaken with particular attention to their meaning in each specific context. Thus, in Old Testament times, one might enter slavery voluntarily. This is just what we've been speaking of. Or involuntarily. Protection for all in servitude in ancient Israel was provided by the Mosaic law. So if you had a slave, God regulated how you treated that slave. They were to be treated with dignity and as humans. Let me keep reading. In the New Testament time, a doulos is often best described as a bondservant. That is, someone bound to serve his master for a specific, usually lengthy period of time, but also someone who might nevertheless own their own property, achieve social advancement, and even be released or purchase his freedom. Now, did you get that? So the ESV translation said it means slave. This is what it means. Bondservant is slave. But because of 19th century association with chattel slavery, we don't want to use that word. That was a poor choice because the word means slave. In both cases, we're talking about a real slave, whether it was someone who willingly sold themselves into slavery or otherwise. And so my argument this morning is that we desperately need to recover the biblical word and the understanding that the Christian is a slave to Christ. Because first and foremost, that's the word used by God as a metaphor. It's the word the Bible uses, and so it's the word we should use. 
Secondarily, by not using the word slave, we risk creating an idea of Christianity that just really isn't biblical. And I think that that's what's happened in much of the Western church. We read the word servant, and what we think of is something that's of our own accord, of our own choice, our willing servitude in which you can just decide to stop doing it whenever you want. I can decide to serve someone, or I can stop serving someone. It doesn't give the same picture as a slave. In other words, we have a sort of Christianity that isn't defined by Christ's will or Christ's ways or Christ's words, but the whims of the individual who claims to be a Christian. And I think in part because... We've opted not to use the word Scripture uses. We've tried to soften it. This week, I listened to a short clip of a homosexual man who claimed to be a Christian pastor. And in this short clip, the whole time he talked about his Jesus. It was very interesting. But he was absolutely right. He isn't a slave to the Christ of the Bible. The Jesus he follows is actually a slave to his own imagination. He owns his Jesus. And so he wants to justify homosexuality. And guess what? His Jesus says it's okay. He wants to ignore the Apostle Paul's instruction for the church. And guess what? His Jesus says it's okay. You see, he's the master. And his Jesus, a figment of his own imagination is his slave, and that's the problem. He's the master, and his, the pseudo-Jesus he's made up in his own mind is his servant. Now, that's not Christianity. In fact, it's blasphemy. Now, this is one example of why I believe it's crucial we, undercover, we uncover the understanding of what it means to be a slave of Christ. If you do a word search, doulos, you'll discover that it's always slave. You'll also find that it shows up quite a lot in the New Testament, over a hundred times, I believe. It never means servant when it's used in ancient Greek literature. And God was very specific about the words he used, and so we should take it seriously. Does it mean we have to do a bit more explaining? Sure. But we have that with so much of the Bible. But for the Christian, it matters. In fact, the metaphor of slave is used more to describe the Christian in the Bible than any other. You realize that? The term Christian, in fact, doesn't even appear on the scene until Antioch, and it only shows up three times in the New Testament. So out of all of the descriptions we have of a Christian, a slave of Christ is the most common one used. In Acts eleven twenty seven, which is where we find the first use of Christian, it says, And when he, that's Barnabas, had found him, that's Paul, he brought him to Antioch. And for the entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So this is the first use of the term Christian. And by the way, the term Christian was originally a pejorative statement. It was given to those who followed Christ as a way of identifying those who rejected the emperor. 
In other words, you were a pariah on society as a Christian. The unbelieving world coined that term. It wasn't an endearing term. No one wanted to be called a Christian because it was popular or cool. It was society's way of marking people who they deemed to be a threat to Caesar and the society. And by the way, Antioch was known for giving nicknames to groups like this, and so it wouldn't have been something you wanted. So we have the term Christian here. Uh, We have it one other place in the book of Acts, and we have it once in Peter, and that's it. Now, Christian, as it turns out, is certainly very fitting for who we are. So what they meant for evil turns out to be used by God for good. It's fitting because it's indicative of the one to whom the whole faith is centered. But it wasn't the common way to describe the believer. Slave is used far more in Scripture than any other single designation. I want to take a look at a few of them with you this morning. And then we'll get to some very practical application towards the end. So, of course, we read in Romans 1.1, and we're looking for that word doulos or bondservant or servant, but it's the word slave. One of the reasons, shameless plug for the LSB, is they've opted not to worry about what people think and just translate the word as it is. So Romans 1, 1, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle. We've read that. And here the apostle is identifying himself first, not as an apostle, not as one with authority, but as a slave to Christ. And we'll get to the significance of that in a moment. In Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit descends and the men start speaking in other languages miraculously, Listen to that, it's verse, Acts 2, verse 14, 18 says, But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see dreams. Even on my slaves, both men and women, I will put in those days, I will put forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So we just described all of the Christians as slaves. Acts 4.29, just as we find Peter and John, they're threatened by the Pharisees for doing a miracle, and they were let go because they couldn't find any fault with them, right? So they did a bona fide miracle. People were praising God, and so they, they couldn't do anything to them, basically because of the people. Well, we read in that verse... And now, uh, after, after they had been released, right, they're praying together and they say, And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your word with all confidence. This is the apostles praying to Christ. I mean, even the demons recognize the disciples as being slaves of Christ. 
In Acts 16, 17, you'll probably remember there's a, 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 a demon-possessed woman who's following Paul around. She's irritating him. And eventually he turns around and he casts the demon out because she's such an irritant. But listen to what she says. She says, these men are slaves of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. I mean, it's a demon talking. If you're still in Romans, if you want to look down at chapter 6 and verse 16, listen to what it says. Do you not know that when you go on presenting yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. And the reality here is crystal clear. Everyone is a true slave to something. Everyone is a slave either to sin or to righteousness. Continuing in verse 17 here, Paul says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were given over. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were a slave of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 23. Were you called while a slave? Now he's speaking of actual work relationship or otherwise. Were you called while you were a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you were also able to become free, rather do that. For he who is called in the Lord while he is a slave, he is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. In Philippians 1.1, we read Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, as his opening statement. Now listen to this, speaking of Christ, Philippians 2, 7 says, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave by being made in the likeness of men. We have Christians described as slaves in Colossians, in 1 Timothy, in 2 Timothy, in Titus, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Jude, and the book of Revelation. In fact, why don't you just turn with me to the book of Revelation real quick. That'd be the very last book. Chapter 1. Listen to what it says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his slaves the things which must soon happen. And he indicated this by sending it through his angel to his slave, John. All the word doulos. Now turn to chapter 2. 
in Revelation. Let me read from verse 18. Listen to this. And to the angels of the church of in Thyatira, write, this is what the Son of God, the one who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are burnished like burnished bronze, says, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your last deeds are greater than your first. But I have this against you. That you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and deceives my slaves so that they commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. In chapter 7, Revelation, we see the angel of God referring to every believer again as a slave from verse 1. It says, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the slaves of our God on their foreheads. And of course, we have this same language in the Old Testament with the Hebrew word for slave. In addition to the word slave, we have God describing His people as His possession. In other words, He owns them. He owns us if we're in Christ. In 1 Peter 2, 9, we read, But you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. 1 Corinthians 3.23, and you belong to Christ. Deuteronomy 14.2 says, For you are a holy people to Yahweh your God, and Yahweh has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. I mean, what an incredible truth. It's interesting to me how many Christians hate the idea that they're meant to be a slave of Christ. Now, the big difference is that when Paul referred to himself and others as slaves of Christ, the early church knew exactly what Paul meant. When he pins the letter to the Romans and he says, I, Paul, a slave of Christ, everyone would have understood what he meant by that. Everyone would have understood the implications of that statement. Slavery was a common part of their life, a common thing in the world at the time. They would have known the different forms of slavery. They would have known the different situations you could end up being a slave. They would have known the difference between what was good and what was bad. Slaves weren't slaves because of a particular ethnic background. A slave, in a lot of cases, looked exactly like everyone else. They would have understood all of that. And what they would have understood when Paul said he was a slave of Christ is they would have understood that a slave is someone who has no will of their own. Or rather that their will is submitted to the will of their master. 
The slave was someone who was at the call of others, and when the master called, the slave came. They would have understood that. They would have understood that a slave was a man under authority. A really good illustration of this is found in the soldier who comes to Jesus because his slave is sick. Now, this is very interesting. You have a Roman centurion who's over hundreds of soldiers coming to a Jew to beg for the life of a slave. That just wouldn't have often been the case. So he clearly loves the slave. But listen to this account in Matthew 8, 5, 9. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not good enough for you to come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under, for I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes, and then to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. I mean, he understood. So they understood what it meant to be a slave. They understood what it meant to be under authority. And mind you, the slave didn't have to be told every single thing to do. And slaves in those days actually had all kinds of jobs. It wasn't always just menial labor. There were more educated slaves who would be basically the family doctor. They would be supervisors of large estates. Many slaves would be entrusted with their master's business to broker deals and to make transactions. Many would be in charge of the master's education. I mean, you've got to have some confidence in a slave if you're going to entrust your children's education to them, especially in those days. For the most part, any job a free person could have, a slave could have that job in service to his master. Many slaves had opportunities that they never would have if they were free. But in the end, regardless of the opportunities, regardless of the possessions they have, a slave was not his own. He wasn't free. And the sole purpose of the slave was to do that which was pleasing to his master. And so when Paul says, I'm a slave, of Christ, they understood what that meant. If a slave was transacting a business deal, he would strive to get the best deal for his master. If a slave managed the largest estate, it was their duty to not just do the minimum, but to increase the estate if they could, to make it more productive, to make it better for the family. In every area, the slave sought to serve the master. And of course, the good slaves were given a lot of latitude. But that was their goal and their role. Now, I say all that, but I also don't want to glamorize all slavery. There certainly was plenty of horrible things and types of slavery that God condemns, right? And even was punishable by death. That was obviously there as well. But the point is that not all slavery was bad. And the point is that out of all of the metaphors Christ could have used, that God could have used to describe the relationship 
between those who are saved and Christ, he chose to use the metaphor of the slave. And so it means that we're not our own. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. To be a slave of Christ means that whatever business you're conducting, you do it for the glory of God. It means that we submit our will and our ways to the Lord's will and to His ways. In other words, our life revolves around Christ. What we do, we do to seek God's honor and glory. And we have a lot of latitude, don't we? You can pick what job you want. You can pick what recreation you want. You can live where you want. You can do all of those things. But as a slave of Christ, it means that we're not free to just do what we want to do. There is a master that we give an account to. So as much as people do not like the word, the reality is that every person is already a slave to something or someone. We all either obey the world's ways, which is obedience to sin. We read earlier, which is obedience to the prince of the power of the air, we're told in Ephesians, or we obey Christ. There's no neutral ground. We're either a slave to sin or we're a slave to righteousness. And yet the paradox is that while the slave to sin is truly a slave and captive, the slave to Christ is actually free in Christ. Free from sin, free from bondage. And there's no greater freedom, there's no greater pleasure, there's no greater life than being a slave of Christ. And Paul certainly understood that. Paul understood that he was a slave to his master and that his master was good. And for all who have Christ as their Lord will discover the same to be true, that Christ is not a harsh taskmaster. We're told that. But he's a benevolent and generous Lord. And he's a Lord worthy of a lifetime of service. So I hope you see the importance of using the word slave Primarily because it's the word God used, but it communicates total devotion to God. It's not just something you can move in and out of as you please. It's not like job hopping. You don't like your boss, you just quit and you move to another one. No, a slave didn't have that option. You served your master for the length of time you were given. In John 14, 15, Jesus tells the disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I mean, this is an interesting, clear passage today with all of the talk of love, love, love. But Jesus says, I determine whether or not you love me according to whether or not you obey me. So you say you love Jesus? Praise God. Are you obeying him? That's the litmus test. You say you love God? Great. Where do you go to church? I haven't been to church in 10 years. Okay. What did you get out of your 
scripture reading this morning. Oh, I don't read the Bible anymore. Okay. Well, how do you feel about not being around your church family? Oh, well, I don't really need the church. Oh, but I love Jesus. No. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And we're told not to forsake the gathering of the brethren. You can't know God if you aren't reading the Bible. It's the only place we have that tells us who God is. You're either a slave to Christ or you're a slave to the world. And God saved us so that we would be holy and blameless. So we read this in Ephesians way back when, I think 73 sermons ago. We read in chapter 1 that we were created, saved to be holy and blameless as His possession, as His slaves. And then we read in verse 3 that He gives us every spiritual blessing as we're adopted, not merely as slaves, but as sons and daughters. Though we're slaves, we're also friends. Though we're slaves, we're also sons and daughters. But we can never forget that we are slaves indeed. So then the question arises, are we slaves of Christ as Paul was? Are we slaves of Christ as Timothy was? As the early saints were? Or are we slaves to something else? As I wrap up this morning, I want to give you some very practical applications. If being a slave means... Everything we do is in the service to our master, God and Father in heaven. Then what does that look like in our day-to-day life? Because we certainly don't have an audible voice telling us everything we need to do. So I just want to speak to four areas. I want to talk about our work life, our recreation life, our relationships, and our general walk. Just briefly. To be a slave to Christ in our work life very simply means we do what we do as unto the Lord. Whether the boss is a good boss or a bad boss, ultimately we're working to please God. And so we do the best we can do. We do the best we can do for the company we work for or the person we work for. It doesn't matter if you work for a multi-billion dollar company or a gas station. We do what we do to bring glory to God. It means that we don't grumble or complain or revolt or steal time from our employer. We work hard so that our testimony will be different from those around us who are slaves of sin. If your boss had to single you out, would you be different in his mind from those who are slaves to sin? Or would you sort of just blend in with everyone else? If you're self-employed, it means that you don't give in to slothfulness and laziness. You do your work heartily as unto the Lord. God's only giving us, given us so much time. You're honest in your dealings and faithful with whatever gifts and talents God's given you. If you're a homemaker, then you keep the home diligently, working hard, not giving in to idleness using the time to learn to grow in grace in Christ and using the freedom you have to develop spiritually. Just some thoughts. Moving on to our recreation time. Well, 
What does it mean to be a slave when we think of our recreation? Well, first and foremost, it means that we don't indulge in forms of entertainment that are displeasing to God. We know what those are. I mean, it's appalling to hear the types of TV shows, radio shows, and books that Christians indulge in, filled with gratuitous sex and drugs and violence. It's appalling to hear what some Christians watch on TV after church on Sunday afternoon. To be a slave of Christ in our recreation means we stay away from those things which made it necessary for Christ to be crucified. How do we give ourselves to the very sin that Christ died for? The slave of Christ is to live out Philippians 4.8 in the recreation. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is dignified, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, consider these things. I mean, the truth is the world's full of enjoyable things that refresh the soul. Why watch a TV series that mocks God's picture for the family, that makes the husband to be a bumbling idiot, that creates the overbearing feminist wife and makes it in comedy form? Why indulge in something that mocks God's way for the family when there are plenty of other good things you can enjoy? For instance, Christian women have a very bad habit of reading smutty Christian books for women. Quote-unquote love stories, which paint scenes that no one should be thinking about. Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever is true, there's a million things that we can do for good recreation. And so the Christian should stay far away from entertainment that really seeks to destroy the soul in today's world, that means there aren't a whole lot of options on TV, for instance, unless you like documentaries or old shows. The point isn't what you specifically watch, but that you aren't indulging in things that are sinful and against God. In our relationships as slaves of Christ, what does that look like in our relationship? Well, this one we've been talking about over the last several weeks. Right? I'm not going to rehash the last three or four messages, but basically to be a slave of Christ in a relationship, it can be summed up in verse 32 of chapter 4 in Ephesians. It says, instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, graciously forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also graciously has forgiven you. And in verse 21 of chapter 5, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And lastly, in our walk, what does it look like to just be a slave of Christ in our everyday, day-to-day -day walk. Well, Paul spoke of the Christian walk over and over in this epistle, in Ephesians, right? In chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says that we are to walk worthy of the calling. In chapter 5, verse 2, we're told to walk in love. In verse 8, we're told to walk as children of light. In verse 15, we're told to walk as wise men. The Christian 
walk finds its ultimate purpose and fulfillment in doing whatever pleases the Father. And the Bible is the only source of record for what God desires. And so, therefore, the primary aim of the Christian should be to master this book so that he can be a faithful slave to Christ. If you don't know the Bible, you don't know God. If you don't know God, you can't know what pleases God. If you don't know what pleases God, you're probably still a slave to the world. Richard Baxter once said this, he said, Remember your ultimate purpose, and when you set yourself to your day's work or approach any activity in the world, let holiness to the Lord be written upon your hearts in all that you do. That's really what it means to be a slave of Christ. One word, slave, summarizes what it means to be a true Christian. If one says, I'm a Christian, then he has to once acknowledge with the Apostle Paul, I am a slave of Christ. And the man who is not a slave of Christ is not a Christian and is still a slave to the devil. Let's pray.